Let me open it with prayer, and I will read the first 14 verses. Lord God Almighty, as we come before you, by way of the finished work of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, we give you thanks for this day, we give you thanks for your grace, I give you thanks for this body of believers, this building in which we meet. Pray for our time together this morning, to be clear, and obvious, what is being declared in this text for your glory and the good of your people. And may we be prepared to worship in spirit and truth today in the next hour. For Christ's sake, amen. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had wings like an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, Arise, devour much meat. After this I kept looking, and behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, a dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. I kept looking until thrones were set up, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him, and myriads of myriads were standing before him. The court sat, and the books were open. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and his body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beast, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Sends the reading of God's word. Daniel 7 brings us to the second half of the book, the first half being prophetic, verse chapters 1 through 6, 
um, I mean being um, historic rather, chapters 1 through 6 historic, chapter 7 through 12 um, prophetic. Um, this chapter 7 is really the pinnacle um, of the book of Daniel, um, as Sidney Gradanus put it. Um, the nature of Daniel's dramatic vision makes this the single most important chapter of the book of Daniel. Chapter 7 includes the key to history. Daniel 7 points us to a mysterious figure, one, notice, like a son of man, who is indeed the key of understanding all history. One like the Son of Man. Do you know that the title that Jesus most often used to designate himself during his time on earth was Son of Man? In the Gospels, he uses, of, he uses that title of himself 79 times. And that includes overlaps of, of corresponding verses in the Gospels, the Son of Man. It's the only title freely used in reference of himself. No one uses that term with regard to Jesus. In other words, declaring the Son of Man. There is a group that does cry out in response, who is this Son of Man? But other than that, Jesus alone uses that title as a designation for himself. It's very important. Now, he did not use it, by the way, as many believe, as a reference to his humanity, i.e., Jesus, son of God, refers to his deity, son of man refers to his humanity. A lot of folks look at it that way, but that is biblically inadequate, as we shall see. So to correct that false notion is to correctly understand Daniel 7, verses 9 through 14, along with Daniel chapter 2, as well as Psalm 2 and Psalm 110, all of which yield for us a compelling view of the Christ and his kingdom. And I assure you, beloved, I assure you, it is not some future, physical, thousand-year kingdom in Israel, period. The prophetic vision in Daniel is apocalyptic-styled writing. It's an ancient, ancient um, literary genre, which the, the people from 200 B.C. to 200 A.D., were very familiar with. They, they understood how to correctly interpret apocalyptic literature, which is highly symbolic language. Highly symbolic. And it describes basically the struggle between God's people and, and those who oppress them. You see that here, and you see it in the book of Revelation. Encouraging God's people all along the way who are per persecuted for his name's sake that God indeed is sovereign over all their struggles. And that they can take comfort um, in the midst. And apocalyptic literature provides the imagery that declares that. 
So apocalypse, in other words, pulls away the veil, if you will, to see another world. That is the control room of the universe. There's imagery described for us on earth, and all of a sudden we're taken away up behind the veil of the universe into the throne room of God. And we're seen and shown, rather, um, imagery there. Um, it's the curtain that, that hides the glory of God. It's pulled away. It's momentarily drawn back for us. And here, Daniel finds himself in the throne room of the universe with the sovereignty of Almighty God on display. So, at this point, Daniel sees not by faith, but by sight by way of these, these visions that we'll look at in the coming weeks. Um, in this vision, Daniel's taken to the throne room. He sees things that he does not understand, and he turns to someone standing by, okay, in the vision, asking the meaning of all these things. Verse 16. Okay, friends, does that sound familiar, by the way? Revelation 4 and 5? where John is given a vision, and what does John do? He turns to a heavenly elder who explains these things. Revelation 5, 5. That which was foretold, this is a key to understanding apocalyptic, by the way. That which was foretold to Daniel in these visions is unpacked and explained more clearly in the book of Revelation. Describing these events that we read here today in light of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. As we shall see. So in verses 1 through 8, they describe for us Daniel's vision of four beasts, which are four empires. Verses 9 to 14 describe the vision of the throne of God and one like the Son of Man. Oh, he looks like a man, but he's not a mere man. He's like a Son of Man. Son of Man is also a designation in the Old Testament for, for humanity. Sons of God. Sons of men. And he is one like. And then in verses 15 to 28, um, note the interpretation of the vision We'll actually explain the interpretation of the vision as we move along this morning, because I'm not going to make it that far. We may look more into it next week. I don't know, because we're kind of set on a course to finish up Daniel by the end, prior to our winter break. That, that may not be possible, so bear with me. Verse 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. And then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it, right? Now, the first year, notice, this represents a flashback. The first six, six chapters were historic. This takes us back to about 14 years before Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5. So during his ministry... 14 years before the feast of Belshazzar, he's given this vision. So we're going backwards. Verse 2, Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Okay, that again is apocalyptic imagery. It's a visionary metaphor. 
four winds of heaven, as we read about the four winds or the, or the four corners of the earth um, in Scripture, here it is common um, apocalyptic imagery with regard to the four points of the compass, north, south, east, and west, four winds. Okay? And then the sea being stirred up by the four winds is a symbol of chaos and rebellion. It's not the literal ocean. Because as we read scripture, which, by the way, is another apocalyptic image, we read of the sea as, Isaiah 17, 12, the nations roar like a roaring sea. Isaiah 17, 12. They're in constant turmoil. They're in continual upheaval. So the four winds, the four corners of the earth, stir up the sea, the nations, Isaiah 57, 20, says the wicked are like a tossing sea. It cannot be quiet. So it is basically, to summarize, a symbol of human rebellion on the earth that God created. This is the place from which opposition to God arises. The four corners of the earth that stir up the sea. That's the picture. So here then, these beasts are institutions that arise out of the sea of humanity, both here and in the book of Revelation. They rise up out of this sea of humanity. So you have two images that are apocalyptic, symbolic. So here now, these four beasts that we just read about, correspond to the four images or the image of Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Remember this, the, the colossal figure in his dream? It was made up of four parts representing four kingdoms, Daniel chapter two. So these are kingdoms that arise successively, made of gold, silver, bronze, and iron. Four consecutive kingdoms. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. Rome is the fourth kingdom. That's key to this vision. Now, in chapter 2, they're presented from, from the glory, or I should say they're prevented, pre presented by way of their outward glory. The magnificence of Babylon, gold. And if you remember in our study, these successive kingdoms, by way of the material described here, actually diminish in value, which is to say that over time, these kingdoms diminish in magnificence from gold to silver to bronze to steel. But as they diminish in magnificence and splendor, they, they increase in strength. Gold isn't that strong. Bronze is stronger than gold, but bronze isn't as magnificent as gold. No kingdom was as magnificent in splendor than was Babylon. So they decrease in value, splendor, magnificence, but along the way, they gain strength. Steel is the final material shown to us, and then steel mixed with clay as we described 
or explained in our first study, that's a representation of Rome that later on as it conquered the world, um, those nations didn't mesh with Rome as they tried to conquer them. So there was always trouble and upheaval with regard to them trying to conquer the world, oppressing people. So these beasts, in short, represent kings. The authorities that are in control of the world in which we live, verse 17, verse 17, so the vision declares that our world is being run by a succession of fearsome monsters. That's the imagery. They go from bad to worse, each one more frightening than the one before. So notice the first creature. It's a winged lion. That was a well-known symbol of Babylon, by the way. Even the Old Testament prophets speak of Nebuchadnezzar um, and his empire as being like a lion. And then the eagle's wings enable this lion to move very swiftly. That's the picture. That's the imagery. So it's, it's likely... Um, a a reference to the rapid growth of Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, he was the son of Nabopolazar. He was a vassal king, but he was a great warrior. And then soon thereafter, he took the throne. So there was rapid growth. But notice the wings are plucked. Those wings are plucked, reminding us that this expansion will eventually come to a halt. And we've witnessed that thus far. So the creature given a human mind probably recalls Nebuchadnezzar losing his mind after the second vision God gave him. And then God in his grace gave him back his sanity, the mind of a man. Chapter four, that's the first creature. Then the second creature, notice, uh, bears like lions are, are dangerous predators. And notice three ribs in its mouth. Likely, most likely represents small empires previously conquered by this beast. And then here goes out the command, arise, devour, eat much meat. So here then, the Persian empire raised up by God to displace Babylon enters the scene. That's the second kingdom. The third beast, another hybrid creature, notice, like a leopard, four wings of a bird with four heads. A leopard is a very fast attacker. So with a, in addition to four wings on its back, makes this beast incredibly swift. And remember, the Greek empire, with, very sw- with its very swift rise to prominence under Alexander the Great, who eventually had dominion over the whole world as a young man. <laughs> He's given dominion. And then the fourth beast, the most frightening, notice, of all, it's, it's the focus, really, of the first eight verses. It's the last beast, exceedingly terrible, crushing all that got in its way and devouring them with iron teeth and then trampling down whatever it didn't eat. Ruthless, verse 7. Now, the horns in the Bible, horns, are uh, symbols of strength. Ten, numbers in the Bible are symbolic, by the way, in apocalyptic, they're symbolic. So ten symbolizes massively multiplied strength. That's all that means. Horns represent kings, not, not ten literal kings, 
but a force, a, a kind of reproduced strength. That's the imagery. And that's representative of the fourth kingdom. Okay, that's the vision. So the focus is on now the fourth kingdom. And that's key because as, as you recall, in the dream given to Nebuchadnezzar, that image that stands made out of gold, silver, bronze, and steel, a stone is cut out of the mountain without hands and it's thrown at the feet of the image and the whole thing comes tumbling down. And the stone cut out of the mountain, which crushes all nations, is the kingdom of the Messiah, which is an everlasting kingdom. So remember this, these 10 kings and, and three and all that, the Roman Empire in its early stages, okay, this is prophetic, it will be a, a, a republican nation. In nature, it will be a republic. So um, power will be divided at various levels early on in the Roman Empire, and 10, which conveys many, could refer to councils, senate, and general assembly. So as they lead at this time, a little horn shows up. So a little horn refers to the succeeding phase of the Roman Empire. The early stage of Rome was a republic. Later on, as a little horn arises in this new phase, that little horn will inaugurate a civil war, and from out of the civil war brings Julius Caesar and the Caesars. a succession thereof, the installation of the Caesars who were viewed as divine, as gods, with big mouths, uttering great things. Verse eight, the little horn with eyes and a very loud mouth, very likely a reference to, to a king or a, or a government, i.e. the Caesars, seeks to exercise its authority over the ten horns, but is only able to uproot three of them. And then that could be three aspects of the government post-Civil War that are now set aside, councils, senates, and general assemblies set aside. The Caesar now, and the Caesars who are dictators. So numbers again are symbolic. It's mouth uttering Great things may have to do with um, claiming divine rights and prerogatives of, of a God. As though he is creator of all, who rules over all. Only one can claim that. Almighty God. Now, this becomes even clearer when we compare this, what we see here in Daniel 7, with John's description in Revelation 13, with the first beast that comes up out of the sea and the second beast that comes up out of the earth. Again, apocalyptic imagery. Notice Revelation 13, verse 1. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. Verse 2. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard, 
Its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon is Satan in Revelation. So this is a composite figure, Revelation 13, of Daniel's vision in chapter 7. Okay? Teaching us that the beast represents worldly political powers through whom Satan often operates. Look down at verse 5, Revelation 13. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. 42 months, three and a half years, 1260 days, time times and half times are all synonymous terms for a limited time of trouble. A limited time of trouble. Not complete, which is seven, but a limited time of trouble. It's used for the tribulation of 70 AD. Referred to as the Great Tribulation, 70 A.D. And the time between Christ's ascension and his return. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about a seven-year Great Tribulation at the end of history unless you invent it from the 70 weeks of Daniel, which we'll get to in chapter 9. Verse 7, 13, Revelation. Also, it was allowed, that is the beast, to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Who gives permission? Who gives permission? God, who sits on the throne. So Rome was the biggest threat to the lives of the first century church. The Roman emperor cult demanded worship as though they themselves were deity. So John's second beast, notice, has horns like a lamb, imitating who? The Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. He imitates the lamb. He speaks like a dragon, that is the serpent, the murderer, the father of lies. So this then in Revelation ties John's second beast to Daniel's fourth beast, the Roman Empire. Amen? We can't miss the connections. His second beast is a picture of Daniel's fourth beast. John is living during the time of the Roman Empire. This is one who wages war upon the people of God, speaking blasphemous things, seeking to defeat the kingdom of the Son of God. So clearly, clearly, this is my point, this is Rome. Daniel was speaking about Rome. John is obviously speaking about Rome. That is the fourth beast. Revelation was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor under the, the oppression of the Roman Empire. Therefore, friends, therefore, a futuristic, 
premillennial dispensational interpretation does not fit this vision. It does not fit the vision. That is to say, the ten horns are not some end time confederacy with little horn being an end time antichrist. That would make a fifth kingdom. Friends, that would make a fifth kingdom. Daniel's vision portrays four kingdoms. John reiterates what's going on to the church under the fourth kingdom, the Roman Empire. So little horn with ten horns and all this, all of that, all of that imagery is just as much a part of the fourth beast as are the iron teeth. Very important, especially when we get to chapter 9. There are four kingdoms in this vision, which means if one holds to a futuristic premillennial view, you are cutting off then, you're forced to cut off from the fourth beast, ten horns and a little horn, making five kingdoms, the fifth being at the very end of time. There's nothing in the text that would lead you to do that. you propel it forward millennia. You're forced to propel it forward, creating a secret rapture and a seven-year tribulation. I'm sorry. You can believe it if you want. I'm not trying to be sarcastic, but this, this is what the text declares. Which is another way of saying, by the way, friends, this is very important, which is another way of saying the visions and prophecies of Daniel the prophet refer not to the second coming of Christ, but to the first coming of Christ who sets up his kingdom when he comes. John Bright, in his fabulous work, um, the, is, the History of Israel, he wrote this, quote, Daniel, context, Daniel was written to those who were in captivity wondering what is the future of the kingdom of God? Our kingdom has been removed. Our temple has been destroyed. What of the covenant with Abraham and with David? Daniel is the answer, Bright says. God has allowed this for his sovereign purposes. He has raised these kings up for his reasons, but he is about to intervene and overthrow them in the establishment of the kingdom of his Messiah. End of quote. Which will be set up, as we have been learning, in the days of which kingdom? Hello, beloved? The fourth, the Roman Empire. Repent and believe in the gospel. What did Jesus come out saying? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The inauguration of which, when he preached that, it was at the threshold. It was inaugurated when he died, rose again, and ascended, as we shall see if we have time. <laughs> so in verse 9, there's a shift, okay? There, there's a shift in scenery in, in this vision, um, a shift from earth with the beast rising up out of the sea and the troubled seas and 
The scene now is majestic. Daniel's eyes are lifted now to heaven. This is very common with apocalyptic literature. Something is being described on earth and then you're taken away into the scene of heaven itself. And here, what do we see? The ancient of days. Friends, this is a scene of judgment. The ancient of days. And by the way, this is, what the, this is not what the Ancient of Days looks like. This is what he is like. Because he's invisible. God is spirit. This is what the Ancient of Days is like. Notice, described as being advanced, that is, aged in his days. That's a superlative. He is the most aged, the most excellent. The Ancient of Days. So this theophany... Appearing to man who is spirit, God is invisible, is described in a very visible way. That is in anthropomorphic terms. In man-like terms. From anthros, which means man. Anthropomorphic. He's described in human terms for the sake of our understanding. He has a head of wisdom. A robe of purity. He's holy, supreme dignity, and great wisdom is being described. He knows exactly how to try this case. He, just didn't, he didn't just graduate from law school and pass the bar. This is his law. So here we have an awesome picture of majesty. His throne, notice, is a burning fire, un, 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 unapproachable for any mere man. You ever try to walk up on a blazing campfire? Good luck. Put your face down near it. That's what it is like. No mere man can enter this blazing fire. Here we have wheels of a great chariot calling to mind Ezekiel's vision, surrounded by heavenly hosts. It's the throne room of God. So the heavenly court, notice, is seated. The heavenly court is seated. Judgment is set, presided over, by the ancient of days, the supreme judge, God the Father, and the books are opened. Records of the deeds of the accused. So th these, in context, are deeds of the beast. Deeds of these nations. Evidence, okay, evidence of the teaching that the state is a moral person. And the head of the state represents many people. And here they are standing before God. They represent nations. They represent a, a corporate personality. It's a group of people. It's moral beings standing before God. These four nations. A corporate personality. Moral beings standing before the Ancient of Days, standing before Almighty God. The books of their deeds are opened. Now we saw in chapter 5, an up-close and personal expression of this, when Belshazzar blasphemes God, and he's destroyed that night. And Babylon is overtaken by the Persians that night. Remember the writing on the wall, the hand? So as the representative head of the nation, his actions spoke for the group. 
and God judged them. Books are opened. Nations are being judged. Rome is being highlighted. Verses 13 and 14 describe the vision of the throne. God, and now the coming of one like the Son of Man. He's like a man. Daniel sees it. He doesn't know what's going on. He's like a man, but he's no mere man. Clouds of heaven. This is not a thundercloud passing by. These are clouds of glory. Glory cloud. Associated with deity. Verses 9 and 10. Verses 13 and 14. Not, not, not a puffy cloud, not a thunder cloud. This is a visionary reenactment, by the way, of Psalm 2. You can mark it down. Psalm 2, it's a messianic psalm. Psalm 110, messianic psalm. It's when God speaks, that is Yahweh. Yahweh speaks, proclaiming of the Lord, you are my son, Psalm 2. You are my son. And when the Lord says to David's Lord, sit at my right hand, your enemies, what? As a footstool, Psalm 110. Messianic Psalms. Two passages, by the way, that the the, the apostles understood refer to Jesus' eternal and divine nature and that he is now as coronated, as enthroned, this son of man, Peter, Acts chapter 2, now rules the nations. He's the judge. You following all this? I know it's a lot. I've been studying eschatology for years, so bear with. And we love it. Okay, now, in the vision of Daniel, he's pointing us ahead to our Lord's first coming. Jesus coming in the clouds is not Jesus coming from the clouds. This is Jesus going into the clouds, receiving his kingdom at the right hand of the Father. He's not coming from the clouds. This is where people get all messed up. Jesus says this about himself, which we're going to look at. So look, look for instance, in Mark. Mark four, you know, I want you to turn your Bibles there. I don't have these. Mark 14, you remember this. We went through this. In Mark 14, Jesus is being tried by the Sanhedrin. And in verse 61, they ask, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Okay, back up to chapter 13. When the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, Lord, what about all these? What about the temple? What about all these beautiful buildings? And Jesus said, let me assure you of one thing. Not one stone will be left upon another. And he goes, they they said, tell us when will all these things, verse 4 be? What will be the sign of these things? What things? The things of the tearing down of the temple. Those things. Jesus goes on to describe, when you hear of this, when you see that, get out of Dodge. There'll be other things that will precede that, but the time has not yet come. But when you see these things, get out. They're going to deliver you over to the courts, verse 9. You will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors. And all of this will happen. But, verse 14, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not, 
let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. And all this tribulation is going to go down. Verse 19, chapter 13 of Mark. But those days, for those days, will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of creation. That is apocalyptic styled language, by the way, beloved. That same language shows up in Exodus 11, verse 6, with regard to the 10 signs on Egypt. It shows up again in Ezekiel 5, verse 9. We see it in Daniel 12, verse 1. A time of tribulation as the world has not seen. It's a style of language to describe something fierce. But in those days, verse 24, after that tribulation, what tribulation? The tribulation at the time of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. That tribulation. The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the power that is in the heavens will be shaken. That is familiar apocalyptic language that also shows up in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13, 10, Ezekiel 32, 7. The sun being darkened and the moon turning to blood and stars falling from heaven is apocalyptic language which describes the falling of nations. The judgment of nations. And in context to what Jesus is talking about, here is apostate Israel and the judgment that is about to fall upon her in 70 AD. And notice, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. That is, they will now perceive, they will understand the meaning of Daniel 7, 13 to 14, as one like the Son of Man is coming into the clouds, that the judgment that falls out from him is upon them. When you, verse 29, see these things happening, recognize he is near at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass until all these things take place. What things? The things just described, the things Jesus dis just described with regard to the tribulation that will fall upon apostate Israel in 70 AD. Those things. Then he goes on to talk about the second coming. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But of that day, what day? When heaven and earth pass away, no one knows. Now, y'all know what will precede the falling of, of Israel. Y'all know that. I just told you that, said Jesus. I just told you that. But when heaven and earth pass away, no one knows that hour. That's the difference. The Son of Man will receive his kingdom at the right hand of the Father, and he now judges the nations as God incarnate glorified. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. So the coming of the Son of Man, verse 26, Mark 13, is an allusion to Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Again, speaking not of a coming to earth, but a going into heaven to receive from the ancient of days. Coronated, exalted, given judgment of the nations. Man, we're out of time. I have more. 
I hope that helped. Lord, thank you for our time. I pray that this will help by the ministering of your spirit according to your inspired word in Jesus' name, amen.